Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 13 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, April the 29th. First, I'll be talking to Matt Keon, the CEO of Genius. He's building the most complete genomic map of the body to deliver faster and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of neurodegenerative diseases in weeks, not years, and is fueling the next generation of pharmaceutical discovery for neurodegenerative diseases through partnerships with universities in Australia and abroad. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake about the big economic issues in the Australian election. But now let's talk to Matt Keon. Well, Matt, tell us how Genius is tackling neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah, thanks, Leon. So... Our, our thought is that it's not the same disease in each person. We think there's a lot of variability amongst different people. Um, you know, for instance, we do see that even with, with COVID um, in the terms of the symptoms that people get across a broad population. So what we want to do and what we're doing is we want to find out what the various subtypes of these neurodegenerative diseases are and then find new targets in those subtypes which we can develop therapies against. So what, what, is, what is the work that Genius is doing specifically? Yes, so we look at what's called the genome or genomics. So we take some DNA from people and also RNA, uh, and we look at that. We, we turn that into code, basically, um, into what's called genomic data, and we then analyse that, and we try and find patterns of disruption, so to speak, in, in individuals and in wider cohorts of patients. And then from there, we can go on to develop and validate and create models of, of what we find in that genomic data. Well, surely you'd have to be working with universities and stuff like that to do that, wouldn't you? Yes, indeed. They're an important part of, of all research and, and what we do. So, for example, we work with the Perrin Institute on what's called antisensoglionucleotide, and that's just a fancy way of saying RNA therapies. We work with Wollongong, who create what I call patient in a dish models, where we can now, with technology, make the patient's own motor neuron cells and immune cells, which are called microglia or astrocytes, and we can look into those. Um, and Wollongong University is very important uh, in that respect. And with Sydney University, we look at what's called peptides or cyclic peptides uh, as well. Tell us about the co-founder, Peter Schultzinger. What happened with him? Yeah, so two of our co-founders are very passionate about ALS or what's called motor neuron disease in, in Australia. And Peter 
around 11 years ago now developed the disease uh, and I met him around five years ago when he was you know deep into the disease and he tried everything you know of course as, as you would he, he researched himself he, he went around the world and and didn't find anything that worked and at the same time there was a lot of inroads that he, he saw in cancer in terms of genomics so his thought was can we apply the same thinking that in the in the way that cancers progress to ALS and then he gave me a call and we chatted and that's how we started in his living room. Okay, so who else is involved? So we have a number of people uh, involved. We've got a number of, of advisors who are ranging from neurologists so that work in the field to specific researchers. And then we've got a very, very strong team of what's called bioinformaticians. So these are people that understand biology and computer science. And we also have molecular dynamics modelers. So these people model uh, proteins and, and molecules. And we've got a whole research arm of students as well and PhD students that, that look at this with us. So, you, so you'd be working very closely with universities in that case? Yes, yes. So we, we have a number of projects. So, you know, for example, University of New South Wales at the moment, we've got a, a project on what's called circular RNA. So these are a new type of RNA that, that we're looking at in relation to ALS. And we have a, a very strong student flow from, from New South Wales so that work part-time Uh, on various aspects of motor neuron disease. So how do you recruit your team? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, we try and hire it as slowly as possible because it's a a very important thing in terms of the the way everyone works together. So I think we look for people who have got uh, open minds and and I guess strong hypothesis around uh, or hypotheses around this disease. I think what we love are new ideas and ideas that that we can actually pursue in an efficient way so i we really look and i really look for people that come with those ideas in in the first instance and have a a, a perhaps a different take on als or motor neuron disease has COVID affected the business yeah so that's a very good question so yes and no i would say um yes but only from a purely psychological point of view in, in terms of how it's affected everyone else um, because most of our work is actually on computers and, and from a cloud and from a server, uh, it actually hasn't slowed us down too much, apart from when we need to do, say, lab work, whether we're doing animal experiments or cell experiments, and that slowed us down uh, a little bit. But uh, you say psychologically? Yeah, I, I just think with, you know, in, in the beginning, it was a bit of a shock for everyone and, and not going into the office, I think, is you know, there, are, there are really great things about the, the kind of culture and the the you know camaraderie of, of an office so I, I think just that in the beginning had affected everyone in, in slightly different ways so and it's important to be mindful about that I think okay so how do you keep everyone together yeah so we have weekly team meetings and then separate unit project meetings the team has uh, its own social uh, zoom get-togethers which is quite interesting uh, and then we're aiming to to transition back in the office in the next couple of weeks so yeah fingers crossed we we can do that in a in a, in a good way now, uh, what's fascinating about this is this is very much personalised medicine, isn't it? It is. It is. And so, I mean, does it mean we need to rethink the way we diagnose and treat these diseases? 100%. I can't be stronger in, in my belief around that. I think for too long we've thought that everyone suffers the same, that that, that the cause is the same, and that the, the treatment will be the same, whereas... You know, just for example, why does someone get a migraine when they eat chocolate and another person doesn't? Why is someone's hangover worse than someone else's? Now, 
A lot of that's got to do with your molecular biology, not all of it, but a decent part of it. And so if we take that kind of top line thinking and apply it to diseases, they need to be looked at on an individual level because there's a huge differences, for example, between men and women. You, if you give one drug to a man and one drug to a woman, they do respond differently. So even on that level, we need to start thinking differently. But beyond that, down to the individual lev level of a, of a human's, a person's genome, uh, their molecular makeup, the way that they're functionally interacting with each other is different. So we need to understand that, I think, on that level to be able to get successful treatments out there. Well, conversely, it means also, doesn't it, that you have to take into account different age groups as well. I mean, someone in their 20s would respond quite differently to someone in their 70s. Absolutely, absolutely. And these are all things with the advancement and, and access to, to, to new data and bigger data sets that eventually we'll be able to characterise and have better understanding around. And that's kind of our mission is, is to try and encourage people to, to get sequence, to get as much data as we can, to analyse it, to get to these new insights, to be able to then offer the treatments that we think are going to be more effective. What's fascinating here is the way data has changed medical treatments, isn't it? I mean, the role of technology has really furthered medical progress and, and help us treat these diseases. I mean, what's your view about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm a big believer and it. it keeps advancing day to day. We can now sequence on a single cell level so we can look at individual cells and sequence on what's occurring there. And I think it, it gives us both a global picture and also a, a local picture of what's going on with these diseases. And we've never had access to that before. Now, it's, it's not a home run. I should point that out. We, the genome and genomics does a lot, but it doesn't do the whole job, but it helps us understand a lot more to be able to move forward. Which would indicate that as time goes on, we're going to become even more sophisticated because the technology keeps improving all the time. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things which, you know, I always kind of bang on about is I think we need a national genomics project, just like the UK's done, just like China has done, just like the USA's done, where we take a big section of our population regardless of whether they've got disease or not. And we, and we sequence them and, and we offer that data to researchers and everyone across Australia to be able to look at. And if people develop the disease over time, the great thing is we have their samples before they develop the disease. So we can go back and try and see what's happening there. And the beautiful thing about this is it's also got global applications as well, hasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm, I'm a big believer that we have the talent in Australia, in, in both the academia and also in the private sector, and that we should be using that to offer and, and create value globally. Now, what's fascinating is that uh, Genius was actually started as a not-for-profit company called Iggy Get Up. Now, how did you turn it into a viable commercial science and technology company? Yeah, so we, as, as I said, we started with a problem we wanted to solve, and Iggy is actually Peter's dog. So he would come into the, the living room and interrupt us um, as we're trying to solve motor neuron disease and we'd always say Iggy get out so that was the start and so we started as a not-for-profit because our main aim as I said was just trying to solve this problem and that was the appropriate structure for, for that at the time but what we found was we started to find things we found a biomarker we started to create IP and fundraising for anyone that does it does it is a very time-consuming and, and, and tedious job so what we thought was we need to raise more money to do the work we want to do to work with these universities etc so we valued all the IP. Um, we bought that IP and created a, a commercial entity. Iggy, Iggy still goes, is still running, um, and its job is to offer 
data to everyone and, and to offer that as a service to the community. And then Genius's real focus is on pursuing these therapeutics and, and, and discovery. Uh, was that a big issue for you, changing your role? Uh, a little bit. I, I think it was a surprise because, you know, our intent was pure in, in the beginning. It, it's still pure now. And I think there's different commercial imperatives we need to hit now, which I think is actually valuable. I think a commercial lens actually helps research and helps drive innovation forward. So interestingly, the way we've developed has been accelerated in the, in the last two or three years because of that. So I found that quite an interesting journey. Okay, well, well that's, that's fascinating, uh, Matt. And uh, look, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon, and anytime. Uh, much appreciated. And now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Well, Saul, it's like uh, we have an election campaign now going on. What are the big economic issues for Australia? Well, I think the big economic issues are how do we sustain the sort of rates of economic growth that we have become accustomed to over the past three decades prior to the onset of COVID and two short but severe recessions that came in its wake. How do we manage an economy where the labour market is unusually tight. We're being told the unemployment rate is going to fall to its lowest since the mid-1970s. How do we ensure that in that environment, we do actually see decent real wages growth without experiencing sustained high inflation, which would in turn require increases in interest rates that could be very painful for an economy that's carrying a lot more household debt than it did 10, 20 or 30 years ago. And we have to meet all those changes in the face of an international environment that probably won't be as friendly to us as it has been for most of the last 20 years. That is to say, in particular, China won't be the driving force for our economic growth that it has been. Indeed, partly because of the deterioration in the bilateral political relationship between Australia and China, but also because China's economy is slowing significantly and undergoing profound structural change, uh, commodity prices are more likely to fall than to rise over the next 10 years. We won't be benefiting from a more or less continuous downward trend in global interest rates, as we have been doing. Instead, Interest rates are clearly going to be trending up, at least in the short term, and probably, though at a lesser rate over the medium term. And finally, of course, the international geopolitical environment is now much more uncertain than it has been over most of the last 30 years. Uh, one of the big issues now arising globally is inflation. Well, that's right. We've seen very significant increases in inflation in most of the countries with which we compare ourselves over the last year. Uh, in the United States now, the headline inflation rate is 8.5%, which is the highest it's been since 1981. In the UK, inflation is the highest it's been since the late 1980s. In continental Europe, in the Eurozone, inflation is at least the highest it's been since the creation of the Euro area, if not in individual European economies going back to the early 1980s. And in New Zealand, the inflation rate is 5.9% most recently. Here in Australia, we haven't seen nearly as much of a rise in inflation yet. Uh, over the year to the December quarter, which is the latest data we have, inflation has accelerated to 3.5%. 
and the underlying inflation rate, which the Reserve Bank targets, is at 2.6% after almost seven years of having been below the lower bound of the Reserve Bank's 2 to 3% inflation target. But I'd expect that in the March and June quarters, we'll see the inflation rate rise to well over 4%, and the March quarter inflation figure is going to come out just before the May Reserve Bank board meeting, which will in turn be less than two weeks before the date of the federal election. So with other central banks around the world having raised interest rates quite significantly, uh, this week, for example, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand and the Bank of Canada both raised their rates by 50 basis points. By the time the Reserve Bank meets again, the US Federal Reserve, which raised its cash rate for the first time by 25 basis points at its meeting at the end of March, may well have raised them by another 50 basis points as well. It will be interesting to see whether the Reserve Bank is willing to do what it did in the 2007 election campaign, uh, that is to raise rates. Now, up to this point, the Reserve Bank has downplayed the prospect of near-term rate rises, saying that the board was prepared to be patient in assessing incoming information and that Australia had more room to wait than other economies did before starting to return interest rates to more normal levels. But that reference to patience was dropped after the Reserve Bank's most recent board meeting in early April, and it will be under some pressure from financial markets to respond as almost every other central bank in the developed world has done to what are clear signs of rising inflationary pressure. A lot of those inflationary pressures from over, to Australia are coming from overseas, and but one of the things that would be taxing the Reserve Bank's mind would be to what extent would domestic inflation pressures be building? That is in terms of wages, and we are not seeing at the moment wages rising to meet the inflation. That, that, that's absolutely right, and that's one of the principal reasons why the Reserve Bank has not just simply held off from raising rates up to this point, but said that it would wait until it saw hard evidence that wages growth was beginning to rise. And so far, we still don't really have that evidence. Indeed, the next data on wages doesn't come out until the 18th of May, that is after the Reserve Bank's board meeting and just three days before the federal election, if the Reserve Bank chooses not to raise rates at its next meeting in early May, it will almost certainly be because it wants to see what's happening to wages growth. And it may well be that it takes some time for wages growth in Australia to pick up to the sort of rates we're seeing in some other countries, even though we're being told, probably correctly, that the unemployment rate which is already at just about the lowest it's been since the mid-1970s, is going to have a three-handle on it for the first time since the mid-1970s. And there are reasons for that to do with the structure of Australia's labour market and the way in which wages are negotiated, especially the influence of multi-year enterprise agreements that are yet to expire. But if we look at other countries, we can see that in the United States, for example, where the unemployment rate is now down to 3.6%, that wages are rising by about 5.5% per annum, which is the highest since the mid-1980s. And in New Zealand, where the unemployment rate is down to 3.2%, uh, it's also rising much more rapidly. So I would expect that we will see a pickup in wages growth, and provided it doesn't 
itself become a source. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Of inflationary pressure, uh, that will be a very welcome development because wages have been stagnating for a very long time. And as Reserve Bank Governor Phil Lowe has said on a number of occasions over the past five years, stagnation in real wages has been undermining Australians' sense of shared prosperity. So you would expect to see wages rising? Yes, I would. Uh, I would expect to see wages rising gradually, in part because of the way in which Wages are now negotiated between employers and employees in Australia under the Rudd Gillard government's fair work legislation, which still imposes some pretty tight rules on the extent to which unions can go in pursuit of wage increases, and properly so, given Australia's experience with extremely militant union behaviour in decades now long gone by. We don't see want to see a return to that. But what that also underscores that's important from a longer term perspective is that if we're to see sustained increases in real wages, ones that aren't eaten away by higher inflation and without increased unemployment, what we need to see is much better growth in labour productivity than we've had over the last 20 years, because in the long run, Productivity growth is the only sustainable source of increases in real wages and Australia's productivity performance, not uniquely by any means among advanced economies, has been pretty poor over the last 10 to 20 years. So we need to see policies that would give you reason to expect that productivity growth will pick up. And I certainly haven't seen any from either side of politics on that front. Uh, Of course, we also need to pay attention to how the fruits of sustained labour productivity growth, if we're able to generate it, are distributed between labour and capital. And I think it's fair to say that while the pendulum may have swung too far in favour of labour in the 1970s and early 1980s, in more recent decades, the pendulum has probably swung too far in the other direction in terms of capital and profits. But the interesting part is that neither of the political parties are talking about productivity. Uh, no, they aren't. And neither of them have been for the best part of 10 years. It's been something that nobody really wants to talk about even though I think both sides of politics understand the importance of the issue. Uh, And that's partly because it's difficult. The things that governments of both political persuasions did during the 1980s and 1990s that did result in a tangible improvement in our productivity performance are things that you can't do again, having done them once. And the productivity growth enhancing agenda now is more politically challenging whoever is in government. Uh, But that doesn't mean to say the agenda isn't there. Uh, The Productivity Commission 
almost five years ago, came out with a report called Shifting the Dial, which quite properly emphasized that if we want to restore productivity growth to anything like what we experienced in the second half of the 90s and the first years of uh, this century, then we have to look elsewhere for the policy changes that need to be made in areas like health and education, in areas like uh, enhancing digitalization and, uh, and so forth. And unfortunately, those recommendations by the Productivity Commission have been gathering dust for the last five years, and it doesn't appear as though uh, those who are framing the policies that the major political parties are putting to the voters ahead of the next election have taken the Productivity Commission's report or anything else along the same lines out of the bottom drawers in which they've been sitting. So there's no political will to do it? Uh, that would appear to be the case, in the same way that there's no real political will to do much to put our public finances in a more sustainable position. Now, I'm not saying this is an urgent task. While global interest rates remain relatively low, which they still are, although they're now clearly going up, governments can sustain higher levels of public debt without requiring swinging tax increases or cuts in other areas of government spending than would have been possible in the decades leading up to the onset of COVID. But eventually, governments are going to have to recognize the fact that the public expects higher level of spending than had been assumed prior to the onset of COVID on things like the NDIS and aged care, as well as perhaps unavoidably on defense as well. And that if governments aren't prepared to cut spending in other areas, and I find it hard to see where they could and win the next election, they're going to have to talk to the Australian electorate about how best or least worst to raise the additional revenue that's required to pay for that additional spending over longer periods of time. Which would suggest uh, changes to the tax system. Well, indeed. Um, I think the Labor Party is right to say that they wouldn't be bound by the completely arbitrary cap on revenues, taxation revenues as a percentage of GDP of 23.9% that the Morrison government has imposed on itself. That has no foundation other than that it happened to be the ratio of tax revenue to GDP during the last two terms of the Howard government when government spending was lower as a percentage of GDP than it's projected to be over the coming decade. So I think the government is right to, the opposition is right to reject that as a straitjacket into which it should bind itself, but it would be better, I think, if both sides of politics were to spell out how they're going to pay for the additional spending that the public very clearly wants in areas like the NDIS and aged care, and which both sides of politics say that they're going to have whether they want it or not on defence, rather than simply assuming that we can borrow those amounts indefinitely. Well, Saul, like those are very important observations, and thank you very much for your time. That's an absolute pleasure, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, Twitter has agreed to sell itself to Elon Musk, the world's richest man, in a US $44 billion deal. The deal puts a Tesla chief executive in charge of a company with 217 million users and an influential role in shaping political and media agendas. Twitter's initial reluctance to accept the transaction appeared to fade after Musk confirmed a funding package for the deal and shareholders warmed to it. The deal was unanimously approved by the company's board and is expected to be completed later this year. 
Going private marks a dramatic change in direction for a company that began as a messaging service for sharing status updates with friends, but quickly blossomed into a way for people to broadcast short posts of 140 characters or fewer to a public following. Mr. Musk secured US $25.5 billion of debt and margin loan financing and will provide about US $21 billion in equity to fund the deal, according to the statement. Musk has signalled that Twitter will be overhauled under his leadership, including changes in content moderation, having described himself as a free speech absolutist. Getting to yes with Twitter's directors, though, is only the first step in what's likely to be an arduous experiment for Musk. The outspoken entrepreneur has hinted at a long list of changes he wants to make at the social media platform, including removing restraints on speech, while at the same time casting doubt on the advertising model that accounts for the bulk of Twitter's revenue. User growth could also prove tricky. Musk's promise to ease content moderation policies is a welcome change for some people, but it has alarmed black, Muslim, LGBTQ+, and other groups who have voiced worry about increased harassment on the platform. The deal comes after a dramatic few weeks of speculation about Twitter's future, triggered by Musk's emergence as the platform's largest single shareholder on the 4th of April. He then declared a $43 billion takeover bid on April 14, which prompted Twitter's board to signal its displeasure at his overtures by adopting a so-called poison pill defence 24 hours later. However, the apparent opposition of Twitter's board faded after Musk drew up a $46.5 billion funding package for the bid, including $21 billion of his own money. According to reports, both shareholders and the Twitter board began to take the offer seriously once finance had been put in place. The deal is not expected to face serious scrutiny from US competition authorities because Musk's major business interests, an electric car company, the SpaceX rocket business and, f- and tunnelling firm, The Boring Company, do not compete with Twitter. However, the deal is likely to draw comment from politicians and campaigning bodies given Twitter's influence as an information source and Musk's stance on free speech. And Netflix has reportedly cancelled multiple TV shows and films after suffering a recent loss of subscribers. The streaming service announced a loss of 200,000 users over the first three months of 2022, falling well short of predictions it would add 2.5 million subscribers. It is the first subscriber loss it has had in more than a decade, causing shares to plunge 25% in extended trading. The drop stemmed in part from Netflix's decision to withdraw from Russia in protest over the war against Ukraine, while escalating inflation over the past year has put a squeeze on household budgets, which may have contributed to the loss. Netflix has projected a loss of another 2 million subscribers in the current April to June quarter. And Australia's year-on-year inflation has soared to 5.1%, beating forecasts of 4.6%, and following the 3.5% increase in the fourth quarter. This is the first time Australia has seen that sort of inflation number since the early 2000s. The March quarter consumer price index was reported at 2.1%. Why does it matter? Because the RBA said it would move the cash rate target once inflation began rising, which means interest rate rises are on the cards as early as next week when the RBA meets. And there are more liar loans at ANZ than other banks, according to a UBS survey. The number of home buyers overstating their financial position when applying for a home loan has not materially decreased despite stricter lending standards, UBS's latest so-called liar loan survey has revealed. UBS banking analyst John Storey said while the overall trend showed the number of factual misstatements made had declined somewhat to 37% in 2021 from a record 41% in 2020, ANZ had bucked the trend. More than half of respondents, or 55%, that had taken out a mortgage with ANZ in the six months of December 2021 indicated they had lied in their application documentation. And the coalition is up to a year behind delivering almost $20 billion worth of budget promises, including recommendations from the Aged Care Royal Commission to deliver a new funding model and its efforts to boost the digital economy. 
Despite almost a year of parliamentary sittings, billions of dollars worth of promises dating back to last year's budget are waiting for enabling legislation so they can be put into action. Caught up in the delay is one of the key arguments of the election campaign around providing registered nurses in aged care facilities 24 hours a day, every day. In the final sitting days before Parliament was dissolved for the election, the Coalition was unwilling to pass amended legislation that had won support in the Senate and Labor sat on its hands ahead of a major pre-election promise. The result is likely a delay, potentially by months, in the implementation of the measures aimed at helping those in aged care. The Pre-Election Economic and Fiscal Outlook, or PFO, released by the Treasury and Finance Departments last week revealed parts of a combined $54.3 billion worth of policy promises are on government press releases, but not yet law. Of that $54.3 billion, $19.7 billion out to 2025-26 is tied up in proposals that were promised in either last year's budget or December's mid-year budget update. The rest was announced in the March 29 budget, with no time to proceed with the items. Ten separate policy commitments account for most of the $19.7 billion, including five separate measures covering aged care. The most significant of those was debated on March 30, the day after Treasurer Josh Frydenberg handed down his pre-election budget. And the $3.3 billion medical gloves and protective suits maker, Ansel, will shut its factory in Russia in June, a year after it opened the plant. The company has decided to close the plant in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which began on February 24, as it takes the final steps towards ending its business in Russia, where it had a market share in higher-end medical gloves of up to 80%. Ansel said it was now winding down the plant in Western Russia, which had opened with much fanfare in June last year, when demand was strong enough to warrant a new factory to service the Russian market. Ansel in March suspended imports of medical gloves and protective suits into Russia from factories in other countries in its network, but will now move to withdraw fully from being a local manufacturer. Ansel in June last year said the new Russian factory was in the town of Uzlovaya in Technopark, JSC Plastic, and employed 120 people. The local production capacity was intended to cover demand in Russia, along with Belarus and Kazakhstan. It planned to produce 2 million pairs of gloves annually in the first phase and eventually reach 4 million pairs. And coal miners will have to pay to reduce their carbon emissions from next year under a Labor vow to overhaul the government mechanism that regulates 215 big emitters, setting off a political dispute over the cost of achieving net zero emissions by 2050. Labor climate spokesman Chris Bowen confirmed the impact on coal on Sunday in a key statement about the scope of the policy, while saying the changes would be done gradually using a mechanism and targets backed by the Business Council of Australia. But Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce went on the attack by claiming the resources industry would be punished if Labor won the election and tightened the benchmarks in the government's safeguards mechanism to require greater cuts to emissions. While the claims set the scene for another dispute over the cost of acting on climate change, Grattan Institute Energy Program Director Tony Wood said the idea of setting new baselines in the safeguard mechanism was an effective way to proceed using a structure already in place. Minerals Council of Australia Chief Tanya Constable said the industry expected to be consulted on the changes to the safeguard mechanism as the Australian mining industry has committed to net zero emissions by 2050. With coal exports forecast to reach $110 billion this year, the policy would see a Labor government ask 62 coal mines to reduce domestic emissions are currently estimated to be about 33 million tonnes a year across the mines. Labor Treasury spokesman Jim Chalmers nominated a potential cost of $24 per tonne for the cuts required. Bowen said the 215 emitters covered by the Labor policy across all sectors would be the same companies already covered by the government's safeguard mechanism, with changes decided by the existing authority, the Clean Energy Regulator. And electric vehicles are powering more Australian small businesses as they adopt greener policies and attempt to dodge rising petrol prices, according to the latest data from the Commonwealth Bank. EVs have recorded the biggest investment uplift, 
rising by 156% according to the CBA asset financing figures. It comes after separate research from the bank showed businesses in sectors most reliant on transport, distribution and construction had warmed to electric vehicles. A survey of more than 900 businesses revealed 32% of those in distribution and 37% in construction are considering adding electric vehicles to their fleets. And Westpac has been ordered to pay $113 million in penalties after the federal court found it had made widespread failures across its banking, wealth, management, insurance and superannuation businesses, including charging fees to 11,800 deceased customers. The bank will remediate more than $80 million to customers following the federal court's decision on Friday, following six separate civil penalty proceedings launched by the Australian Securities Investments Commission in November 2021. Westpac agreed to pay the penalties in November 2021 following the ASIC action, with the agreed settlement previously flagged on Westpac's balance sheet. They included fees charged for no service, with the bank charging $10.9 million in advice fees to 11,800 deceased customers, triggering a $40 million penalty from the court. Westpac was also issued a $15 million penalty for distributing duplicate insurance policies to more than 7,000 customers, causing customers to pay for unneeded coverage. It was also charged penalties for inadequate fee disclosure to 24,000 advice clients for selling consumer credit card debt to debt purchases with incorrect interest rates for having, and for having charged members with Westpac superannuation subsidiary BT Farms Management insurance premiums, including banned commissions. And price hikes slated to hit regional newspapers on July the 1st from Australia's sole remaining newsprint plant are worse than the industry has feared, with some publishers reporting price jumps of 80% over previous rates and orders going only half-filled. Regional media representatives asked the federal government for rapid help, fearing the cost rises could result in newsroom closures. Norwegian paper giant Norske Skog has closed its New Zealand and Albury mills in recent years because of a long-term decline in demand for newsprint, leaving only its Boyer facility in northern Tasmania making that type of paper in the region. But demand for paper is outstripping limited supply as Australia recovers from the pandemic. International options are limited. Another major global wood products company, Finland's UPM, is facing a crippling strike that has lasted about four months. Russia, a major supplier of wood, is under sanctions because of its invasion of Ukraine. And freight from Asian paper supplies has become more costly as a result of the global supply chain crunch. Country Press Australia, an industry association representing 190 papers, and Australian Community Media, a company that has a further 140 titles, wrote on Thursday that the Communications Minister Paul Fletcher and Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce asking to help through the price crunch. And US Workplace and TikTok for Business Video Communications Unicorn Loom is putting boots on the ground in Australia for the first time as part of a major growth push in the region. The platform, which came from the idea of making a business version of fast-growing video-based social media platforms, enables employees to make quick videos they can share with their colleagues. The company's asynchronous video platform is based on patented video streaming infrastructure that enables users to record the content on their computer screens while simultaneously recording themselves narrating the content. It also lets them quickly edit and send the footage with ease, and there is an app version of the platform. The company has raised more than US $200 million, that's $278 million Aussie, to date from top-tier VCs including Sequoia Capital, Kleiner Perkins, General Catalyst, Co2 and Point9. Slack has also invested, as has actor Ashton Kutcher, Instagram's Kevin Systrom, and Jay Simons, a former Atlassian president turned general partner at Mary Meeker's Bond. Its local expansion, Loom's first major offshore market move outside of Canada and the UK, comes on the back of strong organic take-up of the product from Aussie customers, the biggest of which is Atlassian. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Russell Martin, 
co-founder and CTO of digital expense platform DiviPay, who will share his five big lessons that small businesses can learn from. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about his forecast for the market in the week ahead. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 